You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, August 31st, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Jack Farley with an unscripted introduction. Welcome, Jack. This is your first time unscripted on RVDB. Yeah, it's uh, good to be here. So, Jack, what are you looking at today? Uh, well, I was reading an interesting article in the FT today that did an analysis of uh um, air traffic volumes and how they've recovered um, throughout the crisis. If you look at a country like China, they have higher volumes now, meaning they're, they're sending more flights than they were in the beginning of January, whereas a country like Sweden or a country of the U.S. are barely above um, 50%. So that's the, the absolute picture. Um, but what I noticed, and if, if you see on the chart, even though domestic, uh, the, the rebound in domestic flights has been um, a little bit present, international flights have really lagged behind. And that, for me, is raising questions um, about deglobalization and, and such that. So, that. so that's something that's, that's on my mind. Interesting. You know, the FT called it the worst crisis the airline industry has faced in 100 years. Yes. And yet uh, American Airlines is still solvent. Um, but in 2013, it wasn't. So, so here we are. Yeah. So let's shift gears. Jay Pulaski coming up with Ed Harrison. Last time he was on RVDB, he was really bullish. Yes. Well, uh, it was quite interesting. You know, talk of globalization. Um, Jay Pulaski has some really interesting thoughts um, about what the world is going to look like going forward. He, he projects something of an uh, American trade block wherein um, you know, most uh, goods are, are manufactured within that block and we're not um, dependent on China. So I found it a really interesting interview. And then, yeah, as you said, the last time Jay Pulaski uh, was on, he was on RBDB with you. Yeah. And he has expressed some pretty bold, bullish calls. And, you know, he, um, he, he got some criticism, not some criticism, but some, some judgment in the comments saying, oh, uh, are, you, are you so sure, you know, in three months, uh, you know, the S&P is going to be at 200? Uh, well, you know, the S&P now is at 3,500. So I'd say when Jay Pulaski comes on tomorrow with Ed, it'll be a triumphant bull returning to Real Vision. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I seem to recall the question I asked him was, are you long for cyclical, structural, or frictional reasons, something to that effect? And he said, yes. Yes. Well, I was just watching his, his interview now, and he is uh, an extremely bullish fellow. And if you ask him, are you bullish on this? He's like, yes, but I'm just not as bullish as I am on all these other things. So very yeah. interesting interview. So, Jack, I noticed you wrote a piece for our new blog uh, about long vol trades. Uh, you were uh, you were corresponding with Jason Buck. Yes, well, uh, Jason's an interesting fellow. He's um, a volatility trader who you actually put me in touch with um, through Hari Krishnan, and he's run sort of a fund of funds for uh, long volatility um, with with exposure to uh, retail clients. Um, and so, what I noticed, um, I think last Wednesday, was that the S and P had a huge move, and that the VIX was moving with it. And I said, "This is this is strange. This isn't supposed to happen, right? Because because it's it's supposed to be the uh, stair up, elevator down. You know, when right. stocks they glide up and then they go down. You know, that is why there is such a thing as uh, 
put SKU. Um, if you look at the, the SKU, that's why puts are more expensive than calls because when they go down, they go down a lot. And when they go up, they tend to inch up. Um, but I think what we had over the past week or week to one week to two weeks uh, is a true market meltup um, that we haven't seen in, in some time. So I'm looking at the correlation between the S&P and the VIX. And you know, normally that correlation is negative. When the S&P goes up, the VIX goes down. When it goes down, when the S&P goes down, the VIX spikes. So that correlation hasn't gone positive since June 2019. And then um, in the NASDAQ as well, that hasn't gone positive since October 2018. And I actually, it makes me think of an interview that Jason did with a guy named Bastian Ballesta, who yeah. is a, a deep value volatility trader, who he actually goes long, long or short, short on um, the VIX and the S&P. So I'm sure that he is uh, he, he's had a, a good couple of weeks. Yeah, we covered this on Ahead of the Curve. There's, there are three great interviews that Jason Buck did. Highly recommend it. Final question for you, Jack. You're a lot closer to college than I am. What's going on at America's universities? I know you're looking through at this issue. Yeah, um, colleges, you know, it's, it's interesting. They start early in the South. But the University of Alabama, uh, they planned for face-to-face -face instruction. Um, they've actually had positive tests for over 1,200 people in just one week. Um, so it'll be interesting to see on that going forward. You know, Northeastern, they had to send warnings. There was some, uh, you know, a party on Instagram that people were talking about. They had to uh, threaten, go as far as threaten to rescind admissions on that. So definitely interesting to keep an eye on that going forward. Truly uncharted waters. Jack, thanks for joining us unscripted in the intro segment. My pleasure, Ash. You know, normally I uh, write a script and I read it from a teleprompter. So it's, uh, it's great to be here with you in the big leagues. Not buying it, Jack, but thanks for saying so. <laughs> now on to the next segment, where I'm joined by Ed Harrison. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back, Ed. Yeah, thank you, Ash. It's uh, good to be back on Monday. Good to be back on a Monday. How was your weekend? Very good. Uh, very relaxing, I must say. And actually, it's funny you would say that because you know that I'm thinking about uh, uh, soccer, right? And uh, I, yeah, every every time we have an opportunity, I want to introduce soccer. You know, El Clasico, Rakitic. I sent you that tweet earlier, or that yeah. about how the El Clasico, how he's gonna he scored more goals than than Cruz or. Uh, any other player on Real Madrid uh, other than like Ronaldo? This is the match between Barcelona and Madrid. Is that what El Clasico means? Yeah. And see, it was funny. You were saying, I don't even know what El Clasico is. Uh, the, so every day uh, we'll give you a little bit more info, you, you know, get you into and people in the comments, please, you know, uh, school this guy, man. You're, you are actually provoking our audience to mock my lack of an <laughs> No, you know? to, to give you more details, you know, to give you more no institutional knowledge of a, of a game that you should be following. Listen, I Googled El Clasico. That was my first step. But, you Thanks. know, actually, over the weekend, I started watching a show on, I think it's Apple TV Plus, called Ted Lasso. Do you know what this show is about? No. Oh, it's brilliant. It's basically about this uh, Division II football coach who moves to London to coach a football team. And it's like, he's completely and absolutely clueless about soccer, knows nothing about it. So it is like literally the perfect analog for this banter <laughs> that we're having. And it's very clever and very well done. 
Well, you know, to uh, to move it to what you and I are thinking about at the the close, we're thinking about markets and the fact that we had a, a fairly decent day on the close of uh, a great month because of Apple and Tesla uh, splitting their shares today. Uh, yeah. What what do the numbers look like? Yeah, you know, relatively flat day. Uh, S and P down about uh, a quarter of a percent to thirty five hundred spot thirty one. The Dow is at 28,430, down about three quarters of a percent. The only major index that has moved more than 1% is the Russell 2000, down to 1561. NASDAQ up fractionally, a little over half a percentage point to 11,775. But you know, it's interesting if we zoom the camera out and look at this from a slightly broader context SP 500 up 7% in August, SP 500 and NASDAQ hit all time highs last week. Yeah, and uh, from what I understand, it is the best August since 1984 for the Dow even, yeah. and I believe one of the best uh, for, for the uh, the S&P, if not 84, 87, since 87. So it was a great month in August for both of those indices. You know, the whole thing of a sell in May and go away doesn't apply. Uh, April was, or, or rather, August was a good month. Well, where are you going to go in May? <laughs> Well, you're not going to go anywhere, which is maybe why it's been a good month. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it begs a question about a larger discussion as to how do we frame this? Uh, and, you know, I was telling you, I really wanted to do a deep dive into how we frame this dichotomy between the real economy and the financial economy, because while this is going on, we still have a slowdown in uh, retail sales. We have lackluster data that's coming out with regard to initial jobless claims, et cetera, in the United States. So how do we frame uh, the big picture of uncertainty and potential slowdown in the real economy, but gangbusters uh, revival in the financial economy? Yeah, I know. I, um, I, everyone grab your beers. I read credit write-downs today, and you were talking about some of the deeper structural causes of these issues, things like the Phillips curve, the employment situation, how the Fed thinks about their dual mandate, uh, employment versus price stability. What are your thoughts on that now? Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to finish the conversation that we had within this whole framing. Um, and the vehicle that I want to use is uh, Hyman Minsky. He has this two price system model. And uh, because I don't have my uh, computer open here, I'm looking at my phone uh, to look at it. And there are two, there are two price systems in the world uh, in, in his, in his um, framing. One is the price system for goods and services, which he calls a price plus, a price plus markup system. That is, is I, you know, I have a cost, uh, uh, and then I, I mark that cost up, and then that's the price that you get when you buy my goods or services. So cost plus markup, rather, is what, is what he would call that. Then right. there's another one, which is a, per a prospective income stream model. That's the asset price model. And really what's going on there is that you're paying for a prospective stream of assets. It's not cost plus markup. It's a totally different price system. And what I would postulate is that these two systems don't have an interest rate which puts them in alignment all the time, especially given the policy preferences at any one particular time. It could be that you know the interest rates that prevail at one particular time, 0% here in the United States right now, are really good for the, um, the price, uh, the cost plus markup uh, system, but they're really bad 
for the asset uh, market system or the reverse. And in this case, I think the, it, it is the reverse. That is, is that zero rates are great for asset price inflation, but they're terrible or actually good or they don't they don't allow for consumer price inflation. Yeah, it certainly seems to be the case. And we were talking about this earlier and how difficult it is for the Fed to sort of meet all of those needs with a single interest rate uh, and possibly some implications for fiscal policy. Yeah, so basically, if you look at it from a monetarist point of view, and I think this is the world that we're living in from a policy prescription perspective, we're in a world in which at any one time or another, the Fed is pretty much the only game in town. And what we're looking for the Fed to do is dial up, dial back its uh, monetary stimulus, and as a result of that, keep the economy chugging along both in terms of its inflation target and also its uh, full employment target. And as a result of that, I mean, that is what they're legislatively uh, commanded to do. Yeah. And, if, and if they don't meet those targets, then they're going to do more or do less. And so what ultimately ends up happening is, is that they fall back on the interest rate lever. And now that the interest rate lever has gone down to 0%, they've gone to the asset purchase lever in order to make that happen. And what you therefore do is, is you uh, have a situation in which asset prices are responding differently to the, the mechanism from the Fed than the, the real economy. And so you have this bifurcation as a result of that. Um, the way that I would put it is, Hyman Minsky had this model where he said, you have hedge financing, you have uh, speculative financing, and then you have Ponzi financing. And at various times within the business cycle, you have uh, mixes of those. As the business cycle lengthens, people become much more comfortable in, term, in terms of speculating, getting into the speculative part of, uh, of financing. And then eventually you get into the Ponzi financing area of, and there's a, a plethora of Ponzi financing. And yeah. what happens therefore is when you lower interest rates under the Minsky model, eventually you get to a point where you have a rickety financial system. That's the instability hypothesis that Minsky came up with. And the result therefore is, is that you're much more fragile uh, and you are, you know, if there's any sort of, of financial uh, calamity, uh, you get hit by an exogenous factor that ends up uh, blowing up the system. And that's what we saw in 2007. And I think that that's what we have seen here again in 2020. Yeah. And so the, the key distinction between these three points is, is how much uh, you are able to do in terms of meeting your debts uh, via cash flow from operations. Uh, hedge financing are people who can fulfill all of their contractual obligations basically straight from their cash flows all the way down to Ponzi uh, financing, where the cash flows from operations are not even sufficient to cover the interest payments uh, that a company has incurred in their borrowing. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have a lot of companies that are uh, you know, even if they aren't uh, borrowing money, they're really taking money from shareholders and they're losing money hand over fist. I, I, you know, I always like to use Nikola uh, Motors as the example. Uh, those companies are essentially in, in that Ponzi area where you're betting on the fact that the growth will come over time and 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 hopefully no bad things will, will occur to the company and to the economy in that period of time and they can grow into 
their uh, their valuation. And and the more and more companies that you have like that on in aggregate, when you have a financial event, the more likely you are therefore to have this Minsky moment that people talk about. And so the way that I'm I'm thinking about the difference between the real economy and the financial economy is is that with zero rates, the financial economy, you get massive asset price inflation because of those dynamics. But in the real economy, there are all sorts of other things that are going on, like globalization, uh, the introduction of the the um, uh, the Chinese into the world economy, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the introduction of a whole mass of Eastern Europeans and others into the the global uh, workforce. All right. of those things are massively deflationary in the cost uh, plus markup system, but do not have that same impact on the asset price uh, system. Right. And for those who don't spend as much time with Dr. Minsky as you do, Ed, this kit, this critical phrase that we hear so frequently, the Minsky moment, uh, you know, it's basically about how stability breeds instability, how you have a period of which during uh, debts building up, Ponzi borrowing, all types of activities that create on the surface stability, uh, and then actually are harboring a deeper instability that's to follow, sometimes quoted as all stable economies sow the seeds of their own destruction. Yeah. You know, one way you could think of it is that you build better and better cars that can handle better and better accidents, and someone might not wear their seatbelt all throughout because the car is getting better and better, and they feel like, you know, they can withstand any sort of accident at, say, 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, more and more, and they, they start to drive faster and faster without a seatbelt. At some point, uh, if they have an accident, then uh, you know the, it, the accident could really hurt them. Yeah. That's, that's sort of the uh, stability uh, breeding instability. All at once, it, it all falls apart. Yeah, so it's a, a series of risk compensation plus moral hazard, and then you have this jump condition at the end where it flips from being a stable system to being an unstable system. Exactly. Yeah. So you were talking a little bit about uh, some of the wage pressures coming in uh, from China and uh, from Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall. How does that all tie back together? So for me, you know, when you have the one size fits all sort of paradigm where, you know, you have the Fed dial up or dial down in order to uh, smooth the economy, both in the asset side and on the real economy side, when you have in intense deflationary pressures, uh, because there are more workers coming into the labor force uh, who are uh, not high-wage labor, but they are relatively low-wage labor, then you, 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 have a, uh, you have a setup where that divergence between the real economy and the assets uh, economy are larger. So yeah. if you have a bunch of uh, wage earners in China who could do uh, very similar things to wage earners in the United States and your company and you want to make a buck, it might be, make sense to offshore some of that in, and to those wage earners in China if that's a large part of your bill, the, the wage part of the bill. And that puts downward pressure on wages globally, especially uh, in high wage areas. Either you move up the curve into other uh, parts of the economy where there's no wage pressure from those areas or you're going to have uh, a lot more unemployment going forward. 
Yeah, and to precisely the point you made in your note this morning, uh, take a look at the civilian labor participation rate, the CIV part series on the FRED database uh, from the St. Louis Fed, and you see precisely that effect happening. You see a rollover. I think it's uh, the chart that you have. Uh, the series begins around 1990, and you see it in the high 60s, uh, and you see it roll down to about 60. Now, these are massive, massive shifts in terms of the total quanta, even though the percentage change may look on the surface to not be that great, you know, five to seven percent. That's a massive number of American workers who are not only out of work, but not being counted in the traditional U3 or U6 measures, uh, the main uh, unemployment rate or the alternative measures of unemployment, which is higher than the U3 rate, not counted in any of that because they are no longer in the labor force. Yeah, and so this is where it comes back to our conversation about the Phillips curve, and that is is that what the Fed has been trying to do all along is say, look, you know, uh, we want inflation uh, not to bear down upon us. We know that if if the unemployment rate gets really low, there's a frictional level of unemployment that always exists, and beyond that level, really, uh, and you know, we used to think it was like 5.5 percent. Now we think it's lower, but irrespective, beyond that level inflation takes off in a big way. So we want to get in there before that, that bad thing happens with inflation. So what's happened is, is the Fed over and over again, what they've done is, is uh, it whacked the ordinary wage earner on the knees right at the end of each particular cycle by jacking up rates. Uh, asset price inflation has already taken off in a big way right from the beginning. But the inflation that they expected for the cost plus uh, markup uh, of right. goods and services never came to pass. They've actually, you know, hit the wage earner, you know, caused the unemployment to to rise even before the inflation came. And I postulate that the inflation wouldn't come because of all those forces that we're talking about: globalization, labor wage arbitrage, a bunch of uh, um, uh, things that have been going on for quite some time ever since the introduction of uh, China into the global. Uh, workforce and and uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, th that's such an important point and very well said. You know, you you have this devastating quote in uh, the note this morning, and it's from Bill Dudley, who was then the president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. And the quote is, "If it were not to withdraw accommodation, the risk would be that the economy would crash to a very very low unemployment rate and generate inflation. Then the risk would be that we would have to slam on the brakes, and the next stop." Would be a recession. It here it sounds very unusual to our ear to hear crash to a very very low level of unemployment as though that were a bad thing. But precisely as you said, that's what he was suggesting at the time. It was about 5.5 rate. Jargon alert uh, for those of you uh, from remembering vaguely from your economics textbooks as I do. This is something called NARU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the theoretical ceiling at which an economy can operate uh, on an unemployment level basis, after which it is exceeded, you start to get various types of inflation, specifically in this case, wage pull. Yeah. And, you know, to bring it all together with the uh, deceleration of the labor force participation rate, when you get those numbers like 5.5 percent and now down to 3.5 percent in this last cycle, and the Fed's been like, OK, we'll let it we'll let the economy run a little bit hot because we haven't seen that much inflation. And over these past few cycles, uh, we've let the uh, unemployment rate drift down much below 5.5 percent. Nothing bad has happened. Uh, 
I think that what's happened is we have a, a hidden level of unemployment. That yeah. is that we have a bunch of people who should be in the workforce, who have fallen out of the workforce. And as a result, the 3.5% number isn't a real number. It's a number that is artificially uh, low because people have dropped out of the workforce. And the way that I would look at this is if you go to, a, I think it's called tradingeconomics.com, they have a bunch of different statistics. Look at any other country in the world, uh, major country, uh, Italy, Japan, uh, Germany, Spain, every single one of those countries has a very different labor force participation rate uh, change since the early 2000s. Only in the United States do you see that number going down as dramatically as it has. So something's going on in the United States uh, that's different in terms of a labor force participation that is making us not understand the amount of slack that's in, uh, in wages. So what's happened, therefore, is that we've uh, taken interest rates down to incredibly low levels, uh, 1% under Greenspan, 0% under Bernanke, 0% again under the new Fed chairman. And uh, the result has been that uh, we've had massive asset price inflation, but we still have not gotten to where we want to be on uh, the real economy. The real economy is still not powering forward across the cycle, and certainly not now in, in the wake of a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And you can see this happening when you look at the, uh, the, the earnings numbers uh, for individuals, when you look at wages versus corporate earnings. Two quick charts also from Fred. So one shows the compensation of employees, wages and salaries versus GDP. Uh, so this is basically showing from 1950, uh, or actually 1948, how this has just rolled over uh, on a on a percentage basis to down to where we are today, from over 50 percent uh, at peak uh, in, prior to 1970 uh, to now about 0.4 percent in that range, a little bit higher. Finally, compensation of employees received wage and salary disbursements versus corporate profits uh, again. You see the same phenomenon uh, rolling over dramatically and uh, continuing to decrease. Now, there's been a little bit of an uptick here uh, in 2020. I'm assuming that that's probably a, a frictional effect based on some of the, the shocks that have happened to the economy. But the overall long-term picture, when you do the long-term correlation line, it's not pretty. Yeah. And so the question is, is uh, what do we do now? Uh, instead of doubling down on uh, the policy where we're saying average uh, inflation targeting by the Fed is the way to go going forward, uh, what do we do instead in order to uh, break the cycle, and in particular this cycle, where it's been incredibly dramatic? Uh, I think uh, there are a lot of different things. You were talking to me earlier about this. You know, education is certainly one of them. I think that you know, trade policy is another one. Fiscal policy is another one. But at the end of the day, you have to have a comprehensive industrial economic policy, which takes into account that uh, we've seen repeated bouts of asset price inflation without uh, enough consumer price inflation uh, by comparison. And the wage earner has been hit by that that mix, and they, you know, it's increased income inequality in a way that has had a very negative and pernicious impact on the political economy of the United States and many other industrialized countries. Yeah, 
and you get, well, you get exactly what we have right now in terms of the food fight over politics. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the U.S., because its labor force participation rate has been declining, is an especially uh, hard hit country in that respect. So I don't see, you know, just backing up to what, why we're talking about this. Why does it matter? I don't see uh, what Powell had to say last week in terms of average inflation targeting uh, to be any different, uh, to to change the regime in any major way from what we've seen before. My expectation is, is, is that it will put a floor to a degree under asset prices for, uh, it, it will continue to do so, but it will take a very long time for it to feed through in a trickle-down kind of way into the real economy. And the result, therefore, is, is, is that we're living in a very you know, going from the hedge to the speculative and the Ponzi sort of Minsky uh, type of situation. And we're perpetually in this state where, you know, any sort of exogenous shock could be the one that causes the whole thing to unravel. And right. I, I believe that, you know, what that means is, is, is that this, uh, this bull market that's caused the best August that we've had in uh, some 36 years is built on the back of a very shaky foundation, and we really, you know, have no idea uh, what would cause it to to continue or what would cause it to unravel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a theme that we've hit on in various inflections here before, which is just the inability of the Fed to do some of the things that need to be done. Another way of looking at this, uh, there, you know, generally speaking, unemployment is divided into three categories. Uh, the uh, the frictional, which you mentioned earlier, this is the inevitable shift that comes between jobs and people doing varying things in the economy that causes them to lose their job before acquiring another one. The cyclical, uh, which is what uh, Fed policy is meant to impact. If there's a cyclical, uh, there's a cyclical slowdown. You cut inflation rates. That accelerates the economy. In theory, hiring increases, and you balance out some of those cyclical uh, challenges that you have. The third and the most pernicious is structural. When you have structural problems in an economy, when you effectively have uh, skills imbalances between the demand in the labor market versus the supply of skills that are on offer, when you have other challenges, it's very difficult to mediate this uh, with fiscal, uh, excuse me, with monetary policy alone without having fiscal policy assist. And, you know, it's very easy to get 12 uh, academics in a room on a relative basis and agree to take a policy action, especially if it's incremental and especially if it's consistent with uh, with the uh, academic precedent that has come before it. But, you know, you get, you could call it Maslow's hammer. You could call it, I guess, if you wanted to be cynical, the drunk looking under the lamppost for their car keys. But the reality is that it's failed to address structural unemployment. It's failed to address the skills mismatch. And what we've talked about before, which is the idea of educational inequality, the fact that the zip code that you go to high school in should not determine uh, the future trajectory of your entire life. It's a pretty grim thing and something that shouldn't happen in America. And people on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, whether they are uh, social progressives uh, or uh, conservatives who support the president, seem to be really unhappy about it. And they have pretty good reason to be. Yeah, and I think ultimately what it boils down to is that uh, we still haven't come up with a uh, apparatus to move away from the Fed. You know, uh, we know for a fact that uh, Trump has uh, moved away from the Fed in terms of trade policy in a halting way, especially with regard to uh, rhetoric against China. 
but you know there hasn't yet to be a consensus in terms of a comprehensive approach in terms of all of these things uh, from an industrial policy perspective. How do you deal with that educational inequality? How do you deal with a, a world that's awash in, in supply? Uh, yeah. How do you deal with uh, the fact that uh, wage earners are not uh, sharing equally in terms of productivity gains? All of those things have not been dealt with in any comprehensive way, and there's no consensus. And until we get that consensus, we're going to continue to rely on the Fed, and yep. that's going to continue to cause financial fragility and asset price inflation. So I'm not particularly optimistic about uh, the the Fed's latest salvo uh, and what that's going to mean in terms of uh, helping this economy grow over the longer term. I think that it's pretty much uh, more of the same. Yeah, it just feels that way, right? It just feels like you draw the trend line. It's just another inevitable step uh, down the same road that we've been heading down, which has not actually solved the problem. So. Uh, I, I, we're, you, we're not going to come up with any great shakes here in terms of where the market's headed based on this conversation, but I hope at a minimum that it's been somewhat enlightening for people to think about it and you know, a framework to put around how, why this is happening. You know, why is there this dichotomy and how it could go further on and what could cause it to break down going forward? Yeah, you hear it from everyone, from your friends from high school to the Uber driver, why are stock markets going up when the economy is so bad? Yeah. And so I hope that uh, this was good in terms of uh, answering those questions for people. I think it's generated a lot more questions than answers. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks yeah. for joining us. You bet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.